If any of you know me, um, and I know some of you don't, um, but if any of you know me, you know or may know that I am kind of a gearhead. Um, I like my gear. Regardless of what I'm doing or, or what activity, I like being prepared. So whether that's in woodworking, I probably have the tool. Because I found it worth having so I could do something right. Or if I'm hiking, I have everything. Now every once in a while, there's a meme that goes across Facebook that basically says, um, hey, guy with the big backpack and the trekking poles and the full boots and the coat and everything, all the rest of the gear, my five-year-old daughter just hiked this with a naked Barbie and sandals. Okay? My reply always to that is yes, but it's the guy who has the backpack and the trekking poles, and the extra water, and the food that rescues you and your five-year-old daughter when you are unprepared, right? When I'm hiking, I have everything with me, everything I might need, because I never know what situation I'm going to run into. I was never a Boy Scout, but I do try to live by that motto of always being prepared. Some people, when they go into the wilderness, are bare minimum. They have just what they think they'll need and nothing more. And I have been at 12,000 feet in the winter with people in sneakers and shorts in three feet of snow. Now, to their credit, they were doing it, right? They were up there. They had hiked miles. But the thing is, if that person stepped off of the narrow path, and sunk their knee into the ground, into the deep snow, and broke it, they now don't have anything to survive a night in the woods, in the middle of winter, in the snow. Some of us do our spiritual lives like that. Unprepared. Bare minimum. For whatever reason we might do, we may be bare minimum Christians. And I pray that that would not be you. I pray that there would be no part of your life, my life, our church's life that is bare minimum. What must I do to get by? Because God has called us to so much, so much more. We're in John chapter 14. Now, we've been in John chapter 14 for like six weeks now. We've still got a few more weeks in John chapter 14, which is going to feel really fast or really, really slow once we get to John 15 and we just kind of launch through it in just a couple weeks. But John 14, starting in verse 15 is where we're going to be today. And what you may notice if you open your Bibles there is that we've got a few paragraphs here that we're going to be addressing kind of piece by piece. This is a pretty dense section and so we want to cover it as, about as well as we can. Throughout this whole section, we're still tailing off of uh, the first verse of John chapter 14, where it says, let not your hearts be troubled. In fact, the whole reason for the entirety of this section of Scripture, the entirety of John chapter 14, is that we wouldn't have troubled hearts, that we would be comforted in Christ. And so Jesus is continuing that teaching as we come into 15. Now today we're going to look at verses 15 through 17, just three short verses. 
But this actually tails also into the next paragraph that we're going to be looking at next week, which is 18 through 24. So I'm going to read this whole section for us today, just so that we get that full picture, um, even though we're really only going to focus on those first three verses. So this is John's Gospel, chapter 14, starting in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live. You also will live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, that is not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Friends, as we come into John 14 today, you will notice a theme that runs through both the section that we're going to run into today, where Jesus says, those who love me will keep my commands. You see that repeated two or three more times as you get into the next section. And that's why I wanted to bring that to us today, that we might see that. What Jesus is doing in all of this, as he's comforting and bringing encouragement, is he is giving us a few signs of salvation. Signs of salvation, each building on the other. Now that's important to note, because as they build, if you don't have the foundation of the one before it, you have nothing. You cannot build on thin air. The first sign is love for Jesus. The second is keeping commandments. And the third is knowing the Spirit. And we're going to address those in three questions. Three questions that correlate to those. The first, and you might start thinking about an answer to this as I say them now. Do you love Jesus? Are you a lover of Jesus? The second do you keep his commandments? Are you a commandment keeper? And the third, do you know the Spirit? Do you know the Spirit? As we address each one of these, I invite you, and I invite you prayerfully to consider your answer to those questions. It matters. It matters what your answer is to these. In fact, these questions may form the basis for the only questions that do matter. How you answer them will determine not only what this life will look like, but it determines what eternity will look like. But that's not that's all at stake here either. Because what is at stake in the answer to these questions is also the very glory of God. 
that we would be a people whose priority is the glory of God above all things. Church, let me ask you again. Do you love Jesus? Verse 15 in chapter 14, Jesus says, if you love me, if you love me. It's a simple question that we might attach to that, right? He's saying if, which raises up the possibility that they might not. Now, hours ago, he watched one of his followers walk out the door to betray him. Now, Jesus knows the heart of the rest of them. He knows the answer to this question already. He knows the answer is an unequivocal yes. These men do love him. That doesn't mean that Peter's not about to betray him and all the rest of them are going to run away scared. But he knows that they love him. He knows their hearts. What does it mean to love God? We talk about this a lot here at Calvary because we want to be about loving God. We also want to be about loving people really well. So we talk about love a lot. Do you love God like you love other things? That is to say, not very much and not very often. I love cheeseburgers. Right? You might say, I love this, I love that all the time. Your love for cheeseburgers may or may not reflect how much you love God. For some of us, we are literally people who love God as often as we love cheeseburgers. Now that may seem really silly to you, and you're like, why is he talking about cheeseburgers? Because so often we love things, we refer to those things that we love, and yet they are just things that we happen to like or happen to find tasty. Some of us, when we talk about loving God, we think about our love for our kids or for our spouse or for other family members or for our friends. That seems right, doesn't it? To think about the love that we have for other people. I mean, certainly better than a cheeseburger, right? Wrong. If you only love God as much as you love your family, you are missing out. Because God is a category into himself. God is above and beyond. Which means if you love God as much as you love your family, well then great. But it's not enough. See, we love our families with full hearts, but often broken actions. We love our families in such a way that if they really knew what was in our head and our hearts sometimes, it would be very painful. But see, God does know what's in our head and our hearts at all times. What does it mean to love God as a category unto himself differently? Friends, there is no one like him. There is none other that compares to him. And in fact, he and our love for him is the source of our love for anything else that might come beyond that. In fact, our love for God should dictate our love for our family and even for cheeseburgers or for whatever else it is that you love if you happen to be vegan or something. 
Hear the words of Psalm 86. If you've got a Bible, I'd invite you to turn to Psalm 86 with me. This is verse 8 through 13. Hear these words. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart. And I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. As you explore scripture, what you discover is that God is unique among all and that we are called to worship God in a unique and powerful way. Our love for God must go beyond feelings, which come and go, depending on our biological cycles, our urges, our temptations, our circumstances. So we know this to be true, which is why our culture coins words like hangry. When you're hungry, and everybody knows it because you're angry and irritable and awful to be around. Anybody get, hang get hangry? My kids get hangry, right? See, the thing about feelings is that they betray us. Our feelings do not always line up with the truth. We are a people who are blessed beyond belief, and yet we feel like God hasn't provided everything we need. Instead, what we see in the Apostle Paul, instead of relying on our feelings of love, we rely on a commitment, on a heart position of love. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Paul writes, rejoice always. He says, pray without ceasing. Verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, I don't know about you, but if I relied on my feelings, that set of verses would be impossible. To rejoice always? I mean, surely not when. Right? Surely not when my family hurts me. Surely not when the diagnosis comes back terrible. Surely not, right? No, Paul says rejoice always. And he says give thanks in all circumstances. Well, surely not, right? Surely not when I have a hard time being thankful, right? That's when I don't have to do that, right? But the Bible tells us to be thankful in all circumstances. That includes the terrible ones. That includes the ones that there is no feeling of thankfulness in. The exhausting moments. The hard moments, the difficult things. Are you someone who rejoices always and gives thanks in all circumstances? So now the Puritans, especially Jonathan Edwards, talked a lot about this. And what they called, particularly Edwards called, holy affections. So we don't rely on our feelings, but he says we need to lean on our affections. He's says this, the affections are the strongest motivations of the human self. 
ultimately determining everything the person is and does. Strong inclinations of the soul that are manifested in thinking, feeling, and acting. Are your affections turned to God, to Christ, or are they turned to something else? Where do your affections lie? Let me ask you a few questions. Do you love talking about God? Do the people around you kind of get annoyed at how much you love talking about God? Do your kids think, all right, dad, mom, I got it. Like, I got it, we got it. Do you love talking about his word? About that thing you discovered yesterday or the week before? Do you love talking about what God is doing in your life, the ways that you see God working? Are you passionate about the Lord? Are you passionate about the Lord? Do you get excited about the Lord? And yes, we all exhibit excitement and passion in different ways. I wear it all out here. You guys know that. Some of us are a little more reserved, and that's okay. Are your words written in your journal passionate? Are your words spoken in the quiet of a one-on-one -on -one conversation about the Lord passionate? Do they come from deep inside and drive you? Let me ask you this. Have you ever gotten lost in the Lord? I know many of us get lost in all kinds of things. We get lost in video games. We get lost in a Netflix show. We get lost in our families. We get lost in work all the time. Do you ever get lost in the Lord? I mean, what I mean by that is, do you ever sit down to pray and suddenly half the day is gone? Do you ever sit down and read the Word and ended up late to a meeting because you just couldn't put it down? Have you ever lost yourself in the Lord? Have you ever been in the Word so much that when you were no longer in the Word as much, it hurt? Have you ever just sat down and dwelt on the cross, on the cross of Christ, for hours, days, weeks? As Christians, we are involved and have been invited into the most amazing story that has ever been written. And it's a true story about the God of this universe who loves us, who cares for us, who died for us. If that doesn't captivate you, I don't know what will. Do you love the Lord? Are your affections rooted in the Lord? Love begins in the head and in the heart, but it flows in actions. So we can ask the question, do you love the Lord? But then we need to move on, don't we? It's what Jesus does. Christian, do you keep his commandments? Do you keep his commandments? Verse 15. 
if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You know, I'm not sure there's a simpler phrase, <laughs> right, a simpler formula, a simpler idea in Scripture than this. Simply, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Intuitively, as parents, we know this. We say it to our kids. If you love me, then you'll obey me. You'll listen to me. You'll want to, right? The first question most people follow up with this point is, if they're going to ask for a clarifier, is, well, which commandments? Right, anybody think that? That's okay if you did. I'm just about to blast you, so you may not want to raise your hand. The first question I've ever gotten when I've taught this verse is the, inevitably somebody raises their hand and they say, well, which commandments? I mean, you've got the two, the greatest commandments, to love God and love people, right? And they say, well, then you've got the Ten Commandments. But then you also have the scattered commands of Jesus, like be perfect, be holy as I am holy, and do not be afraid. These are what I call the scattered commands. They're, they're all over the place. And then if you really want to take this to the next level, you go to the Old Testament and you open up the 672 commandments in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And you say, well, which ones do I need to follow? The heart of that question is bare minimum. The heart of that question is, I don't want to follow any of them. So which ones do I have to follow? That's the heart of that question. It's rooted in what must I do rather than in what can I do. It should be the joy of every believer to do every single thing that Christ told us to do. The joy. Even those things that we don't like, even those things that make us comfortable, even those things that are hard, when Christ tells us something, we should be like, yes, I get to do this. And yet so many of us go through our lives in the bare minimum. Lord, what must I do? What happens when people come to Jesus in the Gospels and they say, Lord, what must I do? In every case, they walk away dejected and sad. Because if we're only willing to go so far and Jesus tells us you've got to go all the way and we don't want to. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Friends, we worship a God we worship a Christ who gave up everything. Everything. Laid it all down. Even his very life suffered. The author of life dead on a cross. And so when we come to him and say, Hey Lord, what's the least I need to do to get into heaven? I think he just kind of looks at us kind of confused. <laughs> right? I mean, how in the world could we come before the God of the universe and say, you know, I only want to go so far, so what's, what's the least I can do? Church, do you keep his commandments? Now I want to make two assumptions here, two biblical assumptions that I think are well supported in Scripture as far as this question goes. 
The first is that someone who loves Jesus, someone whose affections are rooted in Christ, wants to do good works. If you have been saved, then there is a part of your heart, either large or small, that desires what Christ has called us to, what Christ commands us to. James 1.22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, thereby deceiving yourselves. We are meant to be a people who don't just hear the word of God, don't just hear commands and think, oh, that's a nice thing, but to be people who do what is required and what is good and what will drive us along. 2 John 1, 6, and this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. That we walk according to his commandments. And this is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so you should walk in it. That if we are going to say to God, I love you, it requires our lives to say the same thing. This means church, that we will be a people who seek out the commands of Christ. When you're reading your devotions, and I don't even know if you all read the Bible every day, or if you get that time every week, and whatever that pattern is, and you're reading through, and, and Christ says to do something, do you sit and think, am I doing that, or am I not doing that? Are you someone who opens God's word looking for him to speak to you about what you should do and be? People who want to do Christ's commands go looking for those commands. And when they find them, they work on them. They apply those commands of Christ as freely as they can in their lives. As freely as they can. This means that as life, as circumstances, as specifics, change in our lives, that we will be people who look for ways to keep the commands of Christ. It means that the Lord opens up doors and changes who we are and what we're doing, that we are people who are saying, all right, my situation is different now. How can I serve the Lord? How can I work for the Lord? How can I do what he said to do? This means that, that we are a people who are looking for opportunities to do what Christ has called us to do. Friends, this should kind of be like washing your hair. Something that you do as often as needed. And when you do it, you lather, rinse, and repeat. Over and over again. The second assumption that we need to make when we ask the question, do you keep his commands, is that no one, not one of us, is capable of doing it 100% of the time. That's the reality. That's the truth. It's where we live. We live in bodies that are still broken and fallen. We live in a world that is broken and fallen. Someday we will live in an eternity where we will get it right. Praise God. There are days we do things that we should not do. There are days we do not do things that we should do. And our understanding as we think about what it means to keep his commands has to balance with the rest of scripture. John 1.8 says, if we say to him we have no sin, we lie. 
We are a people who are not going to get this right every single time. We are a people who struggle, who fail, and who fall. And isn't it a good thing that Christ commands us that when we do, that we would turn to him in confession, 1 John 1, 9. And that we would repent of that sin. We would turn from it and go another way. And that we would be a people who put that sin to death. See, those are commands too. Christ would not have commanded us to confess, repent, and put our sin to death if we were going to be able to make it through our lives without sin. He gives us the way. He gives us the way. So church, do you love Jesus? And do you keep his commands? Do you love Jesus and do you keep his commands? And the third question that we see here in our passage is, do you know the Spirit? Do you know the Spirit? Starting in verse 16, he says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Church, do you know the Spirit? Now, I ask the question the way I'm asking it on purpose, because some of us may need a bit of correction. Some of us, when we think about the Spirit of God indwelling us, think about the power that we get or gain upon salvation. And it is true that when we come to Christ, when Christ saves us, he gives us the spirit, which is power in our lives, that we would be able to avoid sin, that we would understand truth in ways that we have not understood truth. He gives that to us. But the way that some of us think about the spirit of God in our lives is as an impersonal object of power that we possess. When the reality is that it is the Spirit that possesses us. It is the Spirit who uses us for His glory and His purpose. Not us who use the Spirit for our purpose. Some of us need that correction. The Spirit of God is a person of the Trinity. A person, not a human person. We use the word person kind of weird. Like Jesus is a person, like the Father is a person, distinct members of the Trinity, not an impersonal force that we somehow gain control of upon salvation. In verse 16, there's a key word here you need to see and understand. He says, and I will ask the Father... And he will give you another helper. Another helper. Now, the first thing you need to know is, who's the first helper? Jesus. Jesus is the first. And Jesus is getting ready to go. The disciples, in fact, are coming to realize that they're no longer going to have their teacher with them. Their, their discipler with them. Their helper with them. And so Jesus says, fear not, don't worry, I've got you covered. I'm going to send another helper. 
Now, in the English language, we have really one word for another, and it's the word another. In Greek, there are two. One of them means a, another is in very different, completely different. The other one means exactly the same. Jesus uses the exactly the same. In other words, as Jesus is saying, I'm going to send the Spirit to you. He's saying, I'm going to send you another who's just like me. One who's going to be present with them, like he was present with them. One who is distinct, like he was distinct. Jesus is making this comparison. He's saying, look, you are going to have another helper. You're not alone. As we can know and love Jesus, we too can know and love the Spirit. This is why I ask the question, do you know the Spirit, not do you have the Spirit? If you are a Christian, you have the Spirit. We're told that. That upon coming to Christ, the Spirit comes to us and lives in us. We're told in this passage that he dwells in us and is with us. Christian, I know you have the Spirit, but do you know the Spirit as you know Christ and as you know the Father? As we unpack what this passage talks to us about the Spirit, we see a few key things to understand. He is, the Spirit is a helper forever. This is powerful. This is powerful. Just, just think about this. In verse 16, he says, I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper to be with you forever. See, Jesus wasn't going to be with them forever at this point, right? But the Spirit will be into eternity. We get to know the Spirit forever. Forever. That's a huge picture. The Spirit's not going anywhere. The Spirit will be with you. Do you know the Spirit? My guess is, my hunch is, is that we don't all. That there are believers here who have the Spirit living inside them, but they don't know them. They don't know the Spirit, sorry. They don't know the Spirit. A little while ago, I referenced uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 17 through 18, or 16 through 18. That we would rejoice always, that we would pr be, pray in thankfulness uh, in all circumstances. Verse 19, Paul writes, do not quench the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. See, Paul knows that every, the Spirit is present with every believer, but that does not mean that the believer is present to the Spirit. The Spirit's there. The Spirit's in your life if you're a Christian. But not every one of us is present to the Spirit. We quench the Spirit. We shove the Spirit down. C.S. Lewis actually tells us that, that the more often that we don't listen to the Spirit living inside of us, the Holy Spirit living inside of us, that it gets easier and easier to ignore His voice. Even to the point where you will not hear it anymore. We quench the Spirit with sin. We quench the Spirit when we engage in sin deliberately and on purpose, and we bring the Spirit with us in that. It tells us that in 1 Corinthians. 
Psalm 51, which Don read for us just a little while ago, David prays, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Now David is praying that in a time when the Spirit was not regularly indwelling believers' lives. Before Jesus sends the Spirit, before what we're reading about in John chapter 14, it was not common for the people of God to have the Spirit of God living in them. God would, for a season, for specific circumstances and situations, send his Spirit to live in certain of his believers. And in this case, King David, as both the political and spiritual leader of the people of God, the Lord had filled him with his Spirit. Now David sins. In fact, David sinned in such a way that most of us would be like, wow, man, that's even beyond anything I've thought of doing. As he took another man's wife and then killed that other man and lied about it and did all kinds of crazy things, David prays Psalm 51 in that context. When he recognizes that the Spirit of God has been removed. Now, believer, the Spirit of God is not removed from us. If you're a believer, the Spirit of God is there, is present. In our sin, we too may find David's prayer to be one that we want to pray. Christian, we can pray Psalm 51. Lord, take not your Holy Spirit from me because we feel, because our affections tell us that the Spirit is not active. Because we've told the Spirit not to be. In our passage here, we also see Jesus describe the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, as a Spirit of truth. For those who have been in the Truth Project on Wednesday nights, you know how important it is that the Spirit would be the Spirit of truth. If you haven't, that's fine, because you know, too, that our world is full of lies. You know that our world is full of darkness and deception. And we are called as Christians to discern the truth. How? Well, good news. We have a helper who's given to us forever so that we can discern truth from lies. I tell you, if you have trouble discerning truth from lies, then you may have quenched the Spirit. What is truth? Jesus tells us what truth is. He says, I am truth. So the spirit of truth is is revealing Jesus in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives. Apart from the spirit, we would not know who Jesus is. Our passage here also tells us that the world cannot receive the spirit. It says, the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. If you walked around the world and said, hey, the Holy Spirit lives in me, the people of this world would think you've lost it. They can't see it. They can't know the spirit. But as Christians, we can Not only will the world not see him, do they not know him, but they don't want to. They don't want the Spirit. 
Christian, I pray that you would be someone who wants the Spirit in your life. We also see a few promises that are made about the Spirit in our lives here. Check out the end of verse 17. It says, you know him. It says, he dwells, for he dwells with you and will be in you. There's three promises that are made to us as believers about the Spirit that you will know him. That you will know the Spirit. Christian, if you are someone who doesn't know the Spirit, then there's a problem. Because Christ doesn't lie. Christ tells us that the Spirit will dwell in you. In you. If you do not know that, if you have not encountered the Spirit living inside of you, then there is a problem. Jesus also says that the Spirit will be in you, and it's an extension of dwells. You are full of the Spirit. Full of it. Full of the Spirit, Christian. Do you know the Spirit? Do you know the Spirit of which I am preaching and talking and showing you? Or is this one foreign to you? We ask these three questions. Do you love Jesus? Do you keep his commands? And do you know the Spirit? Jesus builds this framework for us that we might see the signs of salvation in our lives. Commandment keeping is built on love and empowerment that comes from knowing the Holy Spirit in your life. Now, over the years, I've met a lot of people who desired to do what God has commanded in one way or another, but could not and would not. Friends, what you need to know as you look at these three questions and you consider them for your life is that all other motives for following Christ, for doing what he says, fall short. If we do not love him, we will not keep his commands. If we do not have the Spirit, know the Spirit, then we will not keep his commands. But if we love and we know the Spirit, we will keep his commands. Now there's a lot of reasons why I think people can't get there. And I want to paint a few pictures for you because this might help you see why you might not. The first is that there are a whole lot of people who are just trying to get out of jail. They just want to avoid hell. Right? We've talked about this, the bare minimum. What must I do to not spend an eternity in hell? Well, there is no bare minimum on that one. You give everything to Christ. People who are in this are often characterized by pushing limits, often asking, what can I get away with? How close to the edge can I go? How far will grace take me before it doesn't take me farther? Right? These folks are often really grace-filled when they think of themselves, but they have a terrible time applying grace to other people. Because if they can apply grace to themselves and not to others, then they can always look at Jesus and say, well, hey, that guy's a bigger sinner than I am. 
They're constantly comparing themselves to others and hoping that they're just a few steps beyond those who they are sure are going to hell. They're often trying to justify themselves and prove that they're better than they are. We see this in the big brother in the prodigal son parable. Right, he says to his father, Father, why are you throwing him a party? I stayed here and did all the right things. Yeah, he did the bare minimum. But his heart wasn't in it. He just didn't want to displease his father. Another group of people that often find themselves trying to obey Christ, trying in some way to do what Christ has said, but fail and fall miserably, are people pleasers. Now, I say this one a little bit painfully because I am at heart, that's where I am saved from, is being a people pleaser. People pleasers are people who want to make their parents or their spouse or anybody else that they might have listed uh, happy. They want to get by, and they want the other people to think that they are okay. These are folks who know that it is actually easier to appear to be Christian than it is to be nagged by their loved ones. They will do church, they will attend community groups, but they won't do much else. They're usually one person at, at home or when they're by themselves than they are at church. It's a different person in both places. Their friends would often not recognize who they are if they saw them at church. The third group that we've, I've seen that try to do God's work, that try but ultimately come up short, are those who are seeking prosperity. They want the stuff of God without the character of God. You may or may not know this, but we live in a world where there is a whole group of people who have been deemed prosperity preachers. They basically preach that if you do this, this, and this, then God will fix all of your problems. And life will be peachy. The only ones getting rich in that category are usually the preachers who say if you give all your money to the church, then the Lord will give it back. Church, God's best for us usually comes through suffering and hardship and trouble and trials. There is no easy path. They think that there's a formula for blessing that begins with them doing the right stuff, and then God will give them the desires of their heart. So they may go looking in Scripture for the various promises, the various commands that Christ gives, but ultimately they don't love Christ because they love themselves. And they don't know the Spirit because they would know the Spirit is opposed to what they believe. The last group that I'm familiar with who will often find themselves struggling to keep the commands of Christ are those who came in lonely. It used to be that if someone were to join a church or come be a part of a church, that they believed first, and then they would find a home. We live in a culture now where it is more likely that people will belong before they believe. 
Which means that in any given church, what we have are people who have been invited and who feel welcome and loved and cared for. But they don't yet love Jesus. And they don't yet have the Spirit. But what they see all around them is a bunch of people who love them and care for them and they want so desperately to have what the others have. I want to tell you, if you are one of these folks, the really good news is that what we see all the time is that is that so often we begin in those places. I mean, how many of us accepted Christ in the first place to avoid hell? How many of us accepted Christ in the first place because somebody told us that he would bless us if we did? Right? How many of us come to Christ from false places? And what happens is that we encounter Christ because he is seeking us. I will speak very negatively against preachers who preach false things. I won't name them publicly. But what I see all the time and what I hear all the time is that there are people who come to Christ even though they sought the wrong thing, they, they were seeking in the wrong, but what happened is they're sitting in the pew and they open up their Bibles and they start reading about the cross of Christ. And their first thought is, why aren't you preaching this? And suddenly they are realizing that they have missed Christ for all the rest. How many of us found Christ through false places? We didn't love him. We didn't have the spirit. We tried for maybe years or decades to do what he said to do with misery and guilt and shame as we couldn't do it. And then one day, somebody said, hey, let me tell you about the cross. Let me tell you about Jesus, about what he's done for you. And suddenly it opened up and suddenly we realized that we love Christ. And suddenly we realized the spirit is in us. And suddenly we realize we're doing the things God called us to do. There is hope. There is hope for every single one of us who has found ourselves in the wrong spot. Because when we read of Christ, when we see Christ in an instant, we can begin to love him. And we are filled with the Spirit, and we know the Spirit, and he leads us on. I remember the first time that I encountered the cross. I was 13 or 14 at a summer camp. Been to church my whole life. And I have no idea if the cross was ever preached before that mo moment. If it was, I didn't hear it. But I still remember when I was 13 or 14, I'm sitting there and the preacher stands up and starts talking about Jesus' death on the cross. And suddenly things started like swirling and all of a sudden it all made sense. And that was the moment that I came to Christ. If you had asked me two days before that, are you a Christian? I would have said, yes. 
If you had asked me two days after that if I had been a Christian a week ago, I would have said no. Because what it takes for our affections to be rooted in Jesus and to follow his commands and to know the Spirit is a genuine encounter with Jesus, with the truth of the gospel, that we are sinners, broken and messed up and wounded. And he calls us out of that to make us into something new. Christian, do you love Jesus? Do you keep his commandments? Do you know the Spirit? If the answer to any one of those questions today is no, then come and find me after church or Scott or Don or anybody in this room you know loves Jesus. And we will love to talk about what that looks like and why you might not be experiencing that. For some of you, you may have never been given the opportunity to turn your life over to Jesus. Today's that day. For some of you, you may have been going through the last two, three, five, ten decades, and you've never encountered this. You've never encountered and known the Spirit. Well, today is the day. Don't miss out another day. Or you haven't loved Jesus. Today's the day. If you need to come before Jesus and confess your sin and give your life to him, today is that day. Come find me or someone else here that loves Jesus. Come talk to us. Let us pray with you. Let us show you in the word the truth of the gospel. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray that you would be at work in us right now. Lord, I pray that you would confirm in us your spirit. And Lord, I pray that you would introduce us to your spirit if we don't know spirit yet. God, I pray that our love for you today would, would be the most important thing right before us. God, that you would draw us to you. As we come before the Lord's Supper today, Lord, I pray that your spirit would convict us, that you would have your way in our lives and lead us to the glory of the gospel. Lead us to the glory of growing and being disciples in faith. And lead us along, Lord, for your glory and for our good. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, earlier in the message, I shared that when we realize that we have sinned, that when we have fallen short, that we are called to confess, to repent, and to put our sin to death. One of the reasons we take communion every week is so that we would have the reminder of what Christ has done for us. I don't know about you, but I am a forgetful person. There are some things I remember really, really well, and then there are some things that just keep going away. And one of those things is the reality of Jesus and what he's done. And that doesn't mean that I forget it out of my mind. I mean, it's there, right? But I forget about it in the moment. I forget about it when sin and temptation rises up. I forget about it when I'm full of anxiety and worry and stress. I forget about it in those moments when my weakness rises to the top. 
I assume the same thing is true for you in many, many ways. So as you come forward today to take the Lord's Supper, we invite you to lay down that sin, lay down that forgetfulness, and remember what Christ has done for us, that he gave his life so that you could live. His body was broken, his blood was spilled so that you could be given new life as he then was raised to life. Remember that. If there is sin that you need to lay down before the Lord before you walk forward, please do. Confess that to the Lord. He's faithful and just. He will forgive us. If there is repentance that needs to happen, a turning away from that sin, and you're stuck and can't do it yourself, then resolve in your heart before you take communion that you are going to find a brother or a sister in Christ to help you turn from that and repent. Resolve that. We can't do it on our own. And Christ has given us each other to strive forward. We've got our blue buckets up here for offering if you've got offering to give today. Our offering goes to the work of this church and this community and beyond. We invite you to come if you believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. You'll come forward. There's a juice cup. There's a bread cup. They're stacked. You can take, take both of them. You can eat that up here or bring it back to your seats. Either way is fine. You can come alone. It's one-on-one, -on -one, you and the Lord. Or you can come with someone else that you came with that you love or even somebody else. We never eat this meal alone. When we celebrate this meal, we are doing so with the millions of brothers and sisters that we have had and will have until Christ comes again. We invite you to fellowship with us in this way. Again, let me just say, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior yet, come and find me or someone else after the service. We would love to talk with you. Ready your hearts, ready your heads, and when you're ready, you can come forward and eat this meal.